Um, to those of you joining us online, my name is David. Um, I'll add my welcome to Four Mile Church. Um, as you know, if you've been with us the last couple of months or so, we've been tossing around a football um, to remind us of the fundamentals. Um, and last week, I gave that football to Johnny and Diane. And if you look around, you'll notice they're not here this week. So we can only surmise they needed another week on the fundamentals, right? Or they're just still working on that toss back. Um, but actually, they let me know they wouldn't be here. So, um, but if you get that football and you need a couple of weeks with it, take it. No big deal at all. So um, anyway, this morning, we're going to kick off our series on the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go before the Lord prayer and ask his help, and then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves in your presence. Our sin is ever before us, reminding us of our need for a Savior. Holy Spirit, would you guide our hearts and minds as we confront the truth of Scripture. And Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, Four Mile Warriors. Uh, this morning, scripture will come from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up into the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you for falsely, against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so many, for, for so they that persecuted the prophets who were you before you. All right, so the Beatitudes, um, some really interesting and challenging teaching for us. And as you remember from last week, this is one of Jesus' first recorded sermons. He's in his early 20s, early to mid-20s. He's been recently baptized, spent 40 days in the desert fasting and being tempted by the devil. And he'd been going through Galilee and Syria, healing people, preaching, and gathering together his team of 12 disciples. His message was unlike any other. He came to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, like we learned last week, and he came to usher in his kingdom. So the king was finally here, and his name was Jesus. But this wasn't the king or the kingdom that anyone had expected. And that's why I like this image up here, because it reminds us that when we study the kingdom of God, it literally flips our world upside down. 
The things that the world prizes, God despises. And the things that God prizes, the world despises. It's what's sometimes referred to as the great reversal. You'll recall from last week, Israel had been oppressed for hundreds of years by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. They expected a king who would come to liberate them from their oppressors and make Israel a great nation again. But Jesus didn't come to do that. In fact, he would establish his kingdom by allowing the Romans to crucify him. He would teach that the first would be last and the last would be first, that the proud would be scattered and the humble exalted. This teaching flew in the face of Israel back then and it flies in the face of our world today. Think about our daily lives, our social media presence, how we're focused on our worldly accomplishments, our awards, our status, the people we know. But Jesus is gonna take it all to task to show his disciples and to show us how the kingdom of God is uninterested in any of it. So much of what we spend our lives focused on simply doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. We're missing the point. So as we said last week, the Sermon on the Mount takes place near Capernaum, the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, about, 30 mi- or about 80 miles north of Jerusalem, at a hill known as Karn Hattin. Jesus retreats to this hill to teach his newly chosen disciples. That's the main audience. That's who he's, he's preaching to. But then the crowds gather to listen in. So the first part of the sermon that John read for us today is known as the Beatitudes. It's a series of nine characteristics that determine what the kingdom looks like. So let's start by breaking this thing down more broadly. So this graphic helps us step back and look at those nine Beatitudes. And you can see up there in the left-hand column, we have the behavioral characteristics that are prized by Jesus. And know how each of these, at some level or another, all comprise the different aspects of humility, being poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering, thirsting, They're all different aspects of humility. And also note how the humility has a corresponding blessing related to Christ's kingdom. So if you're poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you're pure in heart, you see God. If you're reviled for Christ, you're rewarded in heaven. So we get all that stuff on the right-hand side in God's kingdom. So in general, Jesus is teaching that humility lies at the heart of God's kingdom. And this is a real problem for us because humility runs counter to everything that our culture holds in high regard. It did back then and it does today. Well, you certainly know how to compliment a woman. Now, if you'll excuse me. Do you know who I am? No, I I can't say that I do. I don't know how to put this but I'm kind of a big deal. Really? People know me. I'm very happy for you. I'm very important. Uh, I have many leather-bound books, and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. (laughs) So at some level or another, we all think we're kind of a big deal. Yet the definition of humility is a low view of one's own importance. 
And although that definition is simple, we all know humility is a very complex concept. So I want to mention a resource for your consideration. Whenever you put together a sermon series like this and you're focused on these types of topics, you literally go through dozens and dozens of sources. And occasionally you find one that just not only speaks to you, but it really shapes the whole sermon series. And so this is a book by Jerry Bridges. It's called The Blessings of Humility. Gene was kind enough to, to grab a copy of this, and it's out there in the back if you want to sign it out. Um, I'd also like to just to put a plug in for the great resource that she put together with a library over in the office building on the first floor in the conference room. If you want to check out some books, there's some great stuff over there. But in this book, Bridges notes how humility is something we admire in others but have little desire to practice ourselves. It's one of those tricky things. The moment we think we've achieved it, by definition, it's gone. Now, it's particularly problematic in the military culture where I spent the last 31 years of my life. You see, success in the military is largely determined by our outward achievements, like our promotions, the rank that we hold, the badges they give you, the awards you get, or the commands they assign you to. And as you might imagine, and if you've been in the military, you know this, we spend an inordinate amount of time in ceremonies with hundreds of people around lauding these achievements. And a few years back, I couldn't take it anymore. I stopped going for the sake of humility. It was nothing personal. I just couldn't stomach all of this prideful hubris at all of these ceremonies. So when I got promoted to colonel, I did it in an obscure Pentagon office with fewer than a dozen people present, and I didn't even invite my family. When I was selected to be professor of the United States Military Academy, I didn't even show up at my own ceremony. Of course, you can probably tell how proud I am of the humble stance that I've taken. <laughs> so you see the problem, right? Pride even shows up in our best efforts at humility. So this notion of humility is complex, but we have to confront it because Jesus demands humility in his kingdom. At its foundation, humility has its roots in authority. So we're going to use this image once again. I told you we're going to get tired of this thing. To remind ourselves of how much authority we really have. As we mentioned before, God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is sovereign in control of everything all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, and he is good. He's the very definition of love. He's perfectly holy and the author of truth. And at the beginning of the time, he just created all this by speaking it into existence. He said, let there be light. Now, that is authority. So how much authority do we have? Well, we don't control a whole lot, do we? We don't pick the generation in which we're born. We don't get to pick our parents. We don't get to pick how good looking we are or how tall or short we are. In fact, all of our talents and gifts are from God. If we're successful at anything, our job or athletics or schoolwork or whatever it may be, it all comes from God. We are simply made in His image, capable of loving, and free to choose how we will respond to it all. So when we start feeling like we're kind of a big deal, 
We've got to remember this truth. Everything we have came from God. Because when we lift our eyes to gain a cosmic perspective, we're compelled to bend our knee at the cross in humility. And this is one of my favorite images, one of my favorite passages of all time from Isaiah 66. This is the one to whom I will look. He was humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Humility is the issue that Israel was dealing with back then, and it's the very issue that we deal with today as well. It's foundational for the kingdom, so we're going to unpack different aspects of humility as we work our way through these nine Beatitudes. We're going to take a look at the first three Beatitudes today. So number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's not being depressed, it's not being weak, not being sad or downtrodden. The word in the original language is chokos, and it means destitute or impoverished. I don't know how many of you out there have been in poverty or you've seen poverty, but you literally have nothing, barely a stitch. Now, the second part of this phrase is spirit, which refers to our inner being. In human ecology, when we think about how God made us, we have a body, a mind, a heart, and a soul. And oftentimes, our external body gets a lot of attention, but we all know that the inner being really describes who we are, our thoughts, our feelings, our intentions, our attitude, motivations, all that comprise our spirit. In other words, what he's saying here is that our inner self is impoverished. Poor in spirit occurs when deep within us we're humbled by the awareness of our impoverished and sinful condition. Jesus is saying to his disciples from the onset of their ministry that they must grasp their poverty because of their sin. Because sin separates man from a holy God, and man can't enter God's kingdom in this condition. So our diagnosis is dire. It's summed up by what's referred to as the doctrine of total depravity. Now, doctrines pull together teaching that is consistent throughout Scripture to form foundational pillars of the faith, and this is one of them. This doctrine holds that all men, as a consequence of the fall, are born morally corrupt, enslaved to sin, at enmity with God, and unable to please Him, or even turn to Christ for salvation on their own. Who we are, what we do, sin penetrates to the core of our being. Man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Now, worldly secular humanism doesn't view it this way. And increasingly, churches don't want to talk about this stuff either. Everyone's basically decent. You hear it all the time, like, he's a good guy. But we're not talking about that. So we've got to be very careful not to confuse manners or temperament. He is nice to me, or he is a happy guy. That's not what we're talking about here, because we can do outwardly nice acts. Remember, we're free to choose, but God sees the intent of our hearts driven by our self-interest. 
so that as Isaiah 64 says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. Let that sink in for a minute. So you mean all that stuff we do in Midland, the food bank, prayer walks, Bible studies, filthy rags? Yep. It's one of the biggest lies the devil tells us is that our righteous acts somehow make us good people. Isaiah calls them filthy rags because it speaks to the depths of our depravity. It's rotten, decaying, kind of like the worms that be put up on the wall up here. So should we stop doing all that stuff? Not at all. That's our great commission. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. But don't think for one minute that doing those things makes us a good person. You see, we're talking about what lies at the very core of our being, pride, envy, jealousy, sitting in judgment on others. And the king isn't having any of that in his kingdom. So does this apply to you? Because I will tell you it absolutely applies to me. And it gets worse. The more that we grow in our faith, the more we recognize the immensity of our sin. And when we become aware of our true condition, total depravity, we mourn. Number two, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, how often do we truly mourn our sin? We may have some shame, maybe a little regret, maybe some disappointment, but rarely a deep mourning. Now, the word mourn is often used throughout the Bible to reference when people react to the loss of a loved one. And I remember when my grandmother passed away during my freshman year in college, I had such a deep love for her that it absolutely wrecked me. The thought of not spending time with her in her kitchen, just sorting out life. She was dead. And I remember I couldn't keep it together during her funeral. I mourned her. You see, our sin actually makes us dead. So we ought to be mourning as though someone died because that someone is us. In truth, sin is rebellion against God. It's in effect rejecting God's law or his character, and it makes us dead to him. I think if we saw our sin in this light, we'd probably begin to approach what Jesus means here when he says mourning. Because if that sin is not dealt with, we can't enter into God's presence, and eternity is a very long time. We must mourn our sin. Now, to be clear, repentance is one thing, confession another, but we're talking about contrition, genuine remorse for our sin. And you know, the prophets, they got this. Jeremiah, you'll recall from last week, he was part of the exile. This is what he writes about Judah. Judah mourns, and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. And of course, the giants of our faith, they got this too. I'm sure many of you grew up reciting this from the Book of Common Prayer, the General Confession. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty, 
provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. The Apostle Paul writes, Wretched man am I. He knew the total depravity of his condition. Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, couldn't find enough hours in the day to confess, repent, and mourn his sin. And then Spurgeon says, If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you're far worse than he thinks you to be. Think about that. You know, it's really hard to be offended by people when you get the doctrine of total depravity because you understand the depths of your sinful condition. We don't often think about it like this, but we see here that we're to mourn our sin because when we do, we can be assured that we will be comforted. Christ's kingdom is a place of eternal comfort. And I'm not talking about that sunny 70-degree day that kind of pops up in western Pennsylvania about the second week in May. I'm talking about the Comforter, the Holy Spirit who lives within us by virtue of Christ's work on the cross. And that leads us then into the third and final beatitude for today. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now this word meek, it can be a challenge. Doesn't mean weak, timid, wimpy. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Meekness is inner strength that can only come from the work of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. Let me say that one more time. Meekness is inner strength that can only come from the work of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. Now, to better illustrate this point, I want to use this graphic up here. And this is another graphic you're going to get tired of seeing. Um, and it actually comes from a um, cadet who I asked to, to paint something like this. And so um, I often use graphics to illustrate points. And, um, and then, of course, I took this and put it on here and docked it up a little bit. So if any of you happen to have that skill set, send me a note. Um, I'd love to connect and, um, you know, give you the opportunity to kind of use the talents God's given you in this area to help us um, build some graphics like this. Okay, so let's take a look at this graphic. On the left-hand side, you can see you have a wide path. It's dark, and it represents the world, and it leads to eternal destruction. On the right-hand side, get an arrow path. It's well-lighted, and it leads to the kingdom of God. Along the bottom, you have a very simplistic representation of life. On the left-hand side, at a point in time, we're born into this world, and as we already explained, we don't choose when that happens. And at another point in time, we die. We leave this world. And in between those two points, we have a dash that represents our lives. And as we already saw with the doctrine of total depravity, we are born morally corrupt enslaved to sin, and at enmity with God. So we are squarely on that wide, dark path headed for eternal destruction until God convicts us of our sinful condition. We realize there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. 
And so we respond in faith to God's call on our lives. And that is when we are justified. We hear that all the time in church. What does it mean to be justified? It means being made right before God, not by anything you did. You cannot get there. Go do all the works you want to do. You simply cannot get there. You can only be justified by that red dot of blood you see up there. So I call this the red dot transformation. That's what makes us right before the Lord. That's when we are born again, away from the old life, into a new life in Christ. And we see up there, that's when we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. When we see the phrase sanctification, think about that narrow, well-lighted path, because that red dot puts us on that path. And then the Holy Spirit walks with us hand in hand down that path. Sometimes we get stalled. We even backslide a little bit sometimes too. We even wander off into those, the darkness of the grass and the weeds to the side. But the Holy Spirit is always pointing us to Jesus, making us more Christ-like. That is the gospel story. That's the good news. And the interesting part is, for as many believers as have ever been in this world, there's as many unique paths that you take. Some of us spend a lot of time in that darkness of the world. Some of us maybe just a little bit. Some of us spend a long time on the sanctification path, and we will continue to be on that until the day we die. Sometimes we're stalled up, right? Sometimes we're moving a little bit faster too. But all of this is about bringing us into God's kingdom, heirs of the kingdom, adopted children of God. That's what this is about right here. Now, we've had a lot of interest lately, a lot of conversation about baptisms, and many of you have had some questions. And so, I want to just take a brief moment and talk about where does baptism fit on this framework. Baptism, we know from John chapter 3, that there's two types of baptism we think about. There's water baptism and spirit baptism. Jesus says we need both to go into the kingdom. What is water baptism? Water baptism is repentance. That is when we turn from that wide, dark path, and we make that shift over to the narrow path. We reject the old ways of the world, and we accept the ways of the kingdom, and we move along that narrow path. We get water baptized to represent that in our lives. We also then receive the Holy Spirit. That's the indwelling spirit baptism that walks us along the path of sanctification. So many people baptized as infants, whatever, it doesn't matter when all that happens, you know, we see in Scripture where Jesus is water baptized and then receives the Spirit. And we see Paul receiving the Spirit and then water baptized. So the order of all this stuff isn't so important. And we'll talk a lot more about baptism in the future. The key is that we walk through this red dot transformation in our lives. And that's really what this is all about. So if you continue to have the Holy Spirit convicting you about baptism, come see one of us. Grab an elder, staff member, uh, Cammy, me, whatever. We just love to walk with you through this. This may be the very next step that God is calling you to. So in our old life, we relied on our own strength. In our new life, God is the source of our inner strength, and that is meekness. A meek person forgives others and is not easily offended because he or she is aware of their own depraved condition. A meek person submits to God's sovereignty, recognizing how much sanctifying work is needed in their life. A meek person is dependent upon Scripture. 
always attuned to how the Holy Spirit is convicting their heart. A meek person is so compelled to pursue truth that they'll fight tenaciously for it, even if that means dying for the truth of Christ, just like the martyrs of our faith did. They weren't weak, they were meek. As believers, we stand empowered by the Holy Spirit with his cosmic strength, no matter what comes our way. So we take the highs and lows of life, the adversities and the triumphs, and we allow them to shape us into his likeness, and that is humility. We even find ourselves not praying for worldly deliverance from trials anymore, but instead we find ourselves praying for a kingdom deliverance in and through our trials so that our hearts would be humbly shaped into Christ's likeness by them. That's what meek hearts do. So now you might be wondering, what's the whole inherit the earth thing about? Now remember, Jesus is speaking to Jewish men. When he says the meek will inherit the earth, they know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the promised land. The root of the Hebrew word land in, old, in the Old Testament is the same as the Greek word earth in the New Testament. And if you remember from our Old Testament review last week, God promised to lead Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. There's a literal place on earth called the promised land, and the figurative place is, of course, Christ's kingdom. So the meek, empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit, will inherit the promised land in Christ's kingdom for all eternity. So let's wrap up by putting these three Beatitudes together in context. Blessed are the poor in spirit, a necessary condition for the kingdom of heaven. When we acknowledge our total depravity as a result of our insidious sin, we mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Not just confessing and repenting, but when we're contrite and mourn our death in sin. We bend our knee at the foot of the cross, washed in Christ's blood, and we receive the great comforter, the Holy Spirit, who transforms our inner self into meekness. Blessed are the meek, those who no longer draw strength from self, but they draw it from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is teaching that the kingdom is not granted based on our own achievements, even if we're kind of a big deal. The truth is, we can't boast in any achievement because everything we have came from God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. And once we respond to that truth, that's when ours is the kingdom, when we have eternal comfort, and when we inherit the promised land in Christ. But it all starts with humility. So join us again next week as we study Beatitudes 4, 5, and 6. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we daily blend our knee at the foot of your cross to acknowledge our poor spirits, weakened in abject poverty by our sin. May we mourn our death as a result of this sin, and may we live by the strength that you provide us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, give us meek hearts so that we might grow in our love for you and for others, and so that we may one day live in the fullness of your presence, experiencing a comfort like no other, 
in fulfillment of your promise to bring us into your kingdom for all eternity. It's for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. So for response time today, we're going to spend a little bit of time in confession, repentance, and mourning, appreciating the abject poverty of our sinful condition. We've got to confront this darkness in our lives before we can walk in the light of Christ. After a few minutes, the band will play a song for us. We want you to stay seated, just listen, soak it in, as we all transition from focusing on the darkness of our sin to focusing together on the joy of our salvation, made possible by the blood of Christ as we walk down that sanctifying path with the Holy Spirit and as adopted sons and daughters of our good Father. We hope you will make our response time today your song and your prayer this week.